Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome to Forum. Writer Maggie Nelson did not want to author a book about freedom. Can you think of a more depleted, imprecise, or weaponized word, she writes? Captured by the right wing after being a clarion call of the civil rights movement, the simple, facile version of freedom has been called upon to support even the lamest opposition to communal care during the pandemic. And yet, Nelson did write a book about freedom following up her surprise hit memoir, The Argonauts, And it's an exploration of how the freedom drive can lead to strange and meaningful parts of the human experience. Tackling art, sex, drugs, and climate change, this is, at the very least, a discussion about freedom that does not require a powdered wig and veneration for Monticello. She's coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Maggie Nelson's new book, On Freedom, comes out of a particular time and place. She's a Gen X poet and critic who spent decades in the academy. She's sober. She wrote the book while caring for her young son amidst the Trump era's eruptions and the pandemic's restrictions. In tracing where the word and concept of freedom are finding expression or constraint, she often holds up different cherished ideas circulating in the hothouse politics of the left and says, do these two things make sense together? Often she's not looking for the middle ground so much as the modeled ground where ideals and political commitments meet actual human experience and geoplanetary reality. She does not, quote, diagnose a crisis of freedom and propose a means of fixing it or us, but rather bears down on the felt complexities of the freedom drive in areas where the coexistence of freedom, care and constraint are particularly thorny and acute. There are so many currents of our times moving through the book. Aziz Ansari and Monica Lewinsky, Me Too and Femme, Sexual Desire, the new moralism of left politics, race and bodies and art, moments of happiness as climate change just keeps going. And I'm so excited to talk with you, Maggie Nelson. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alexis. I'm so happy to talk to you. Um, Though you don't focus narrowly on political freedom. Do you see this book primarily as a project of reclamation of the word and conceptual terrain from kind of the freedom fries, right? (laughs) Uh, 
I, I don't see it as a reclam. I mean, I, I go over that in the introduction that I don't quite see it as a reclamation in the sense that I think the word is still alive and well in liberatory politics, you know, vis-a-vis -vis, um, Black Lives Matter or trans liberation or all kinds of things. So I don't, I don't think that it's necessarily about kind of restoring it to its pre, um, you know, neoliberal centrality um, to the left or otherwise. I really wanted the book to uh, sidestep that kind of um, uh, reclamatory, you know, what does the mm -hmm. word mean? Who gets to use it? Um, how is it, you know, when is it used poorly or as a weapon? And really actually just get into other territory, some of which is very psychological about our internal resistances to freedom, uh, the ways in which we crave things beyond uh, sovereignty and agency, you know, and look at how, and, and look at that in, in these non, I mean, they're all there, everything relates to politics, but I didn't, I intentionally with the glut of books about freedom and politics, I intentionally set up the chapters shop elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it does seem um, that one of the most interesting and, and kind of fun parts of this book is that you are trying to carve out this space for these impulses, desires, and psychological states that seem like they don't fit very well with some of the current mores. Um, and yet you also are trying not to give sucker to people who have harmed others. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the book looks at the how freedom and care have been turned into a you know binary um, often pitted against each other and I wrote it before the pandemic but obviously the pandemic um, put that all into technicolor for us you know and I don't I there are a number of reasons why I think that's troubling um, and I don't think also just a kind of mindless veneration of care without understanding all of its complexities and the inner resistances um, and also uneven distributions of who does the work of care um, in society uh, and the way that care and coercion um, often are linked up with each other. I thought it was worth spending some time not just saying, hey, we choose care over freedom, but saying um, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. So one of the other things that you sort of argue against is this, you know, kind of rupture that could come with liberation. Like one day we're not free and like the next day we're free instead kind right. of using this idea of the sort of practice of freedom. And I thought one way you could sort of describe that for listeners would be to talk about sort of what the practices of freedom are around, say, the pandemic. Like how would you practice freedom within the, this context? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, different people have, you know, are such vastly different and unjust, again, distribution of circumstances. So it would really be um, hard to say um, in a blanket fashion, but I would just say for me personally that, you know, a lot of people have asked me what it was like to finish this book in such an intensely constrained time. And that was entirely true that the, that the constraints of the pandemic were, um, I think for all of us have been in varying ways, very hard to bear. Um, you know, the, for me, the end of childcare constraints on time, constraint, you know, uh, psychic constraints uh, that, that come with feelings of anxiety and things that remain outside your control, but might harm you. So find, so, you know, finding a relationship to, um, uh, finding a relationship to all that where it doesn't just feel constricting and throttling. Mm -hmm. um, is I think one practice of freedom that, you know. Also, maybe, you know, one thing that I took from this book was that, you know, constraint and freedom, uh, generate each other in some ways, yeah. right? Like yeah. where there's, where there's constraint in one place, it sort of seems like counterintuitively freedom bubbles up anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that, that 
question becomes most explicit in the last chapter, which is about the climate and the, the way in which, um, you know, our kind of obsession with notions of forms of freedom that, that are involved with defying um, the limits of our material existence on the earth are, you know, only going to lead to, um, you know, boiling us alive, basically. So there's not a very free state. Um, and so figuring out how to come up with, for example, the idea of restraint as a form of freedom where you restrain yourself from you know, getting the rest of the fossil fuels that are in the earth out of it, you know, things like that. And, and also that there are modes of, of freedom that, that freedom is a concept where we, we, we talk about it as feeling liberating or free or spacious, but that many of its iterations, the kind of give me liberty or give me death, um, or like I'm holding on to my, as I quote somebody in the book at the Heartland Institute saying, you know, you'll have to pry this thermostat out of my dead cold hands, you know, like that kind of attachment to freedom that is so constricting, you know, and that becomes a kind of death drive, um, you know, does not feel to me particularly liberatory. And so I think the book is, especially that last chapter is about um, figuring out how to work with the constraints of our material existence and um, drives towards liberation, but also letting them change, you know, letting them get ventilated um, so that we don't just keep one carbon-based notion of freedom that we've had for the past 250 years as our only capacity to experience it. Yeah, I mean, in that climate chapter, um, you just have a line, which I, it just kind of keeps revolving around in my head. You said, to date, we have all thought modern freedom with oil. Can you describe yeah. what, what you mean by that? Yeah, well, I was very inspired by, um, you know, two essays. Um, oh, well, one a book by Timothy Mitchell about democracy and oil and the other, a kind of famous essay by Chakrabarti about, um, uh, about precisely that, about, about the, the, the mass discourse in Western writing at any rate about the nature of human freedom um, developed precisely at the same time, um, you know, alongside the fossil fuel era, you know, from the kind of patenting of the steam engine um, in, and uh, in the mid 18th century to the present. And so this kind of voluminous discourse that we have about, about freedom from say like, you know, kind of the French revolution on um, and obviously the birth of this country, you know, all, all of this discourse in philosophy and political theory you know, has, has all been commensurate with the kinds, and, you know, and, and resistance to monarchies, union politics is where the Timothy Mitchell comes in, you know, all, all revolutionary ideas of freedom also have all been enabled by um, things like uh, travel, being able to meet different places, getting away from oppressive situations, you know, all things that in, in some sense have been enabled by um, the forms of transportation um, and other things that, that, fossil fuels gave to us, um, you know? So I think that it's, it's that, that, that kind of realization when I was doing that research became totally fascinating to me because it was also not just the history of it, but also just the challenge to, you know, myself as an intellectual or for other people to really think hard about when you're thinking about a big abstract idea, what are the material, you know, what are the material, mm -hmm. not just the material conditions like that I have enough money to be at my desk or whatnot, you know, doing this as part of my day, but also just what are the ways in which I think is partnering with material um, parts of the earth, you know, that have, that are shaping my thinking literally um, by their combustion. And I think that that puts intellectual life in a really different um, light. And I think that's something that's, you know, becoming much more common these days is seeing, uh, thinking and, uh, you know, all of our being through an ecological lens. 
It's also so hard to conceptualize what like a solar freedom would feel like or what would result right. from it, you know. And if you go right. back, you read, uh, you know, there's a great book called Design for a Limited Planet where these people go wander the hippie communes of the 70s. And people do say all these things about how living in a solar powered house makes them feel different, makes right. them have different thoughts. But I yeah. could never I could never access that. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I could yeah, never yeah. even imagine yeah. what that might feel like. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And I know that there's been a lot of writing in, you know, in climate quarters about imagination, which is admittedly not my strong suit. But I do think that what you're saying is that, you know, a lot of the feelings that I mean, that we have, and I started this book out with a little informal questionnaire to some of my smartest friends about when they felt most free. And a lot of the responses I got, interestingly, as I looked at them over the years of writing, um, had to do with driving fast in cars, um, mm. uh, g- getting away from places where that, that were their places of origin, you know, often, you know, facilitated by planes to different countries and other things like that. I mean, they were, it was a real, and as I kept looking at it, I kept thinking, wow, you know, this is so deep in that there's something about being tied to the local or being tied to, um, or, or, or not being able to move vis-a-vis the ways, you know, cheap air travel or whatnot, that we really have tied up with, with you know, even, even the most, you know, leftist or revolutionary among us tied up with, with carbon. And I, and I thought, just like you were saying, we don't know yet what the other forms of freedom will feel like. They will be there for us, you know, um, but they will feel different, you know. I've also wondered, too, you know, because so much of our thinking about that kind of energy freedom did come from the 70s, did come from kind of back to landers, that there was a, you know, uh, the kind of sense of interdependence that we now think about with a lot of ecology in the way that we'd, how would we remain connected inside that solar freedom, um, I think is something that is uh, really still feels up up in the air. Um, We're talking with Maggie Nelson about her new book, On Freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. And we do also want to hear from you. Which freedoms are the most important to you? What's it taken for granted freedom that maybe we should pay more attention to? And how do you think the concept of freedom has been warped by our political climate? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions or comments to forum at KQED. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. We'll be back with more Maggie Nelson after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Maggie Nelson about her new book on freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. We actually thought of a better question. It's the question that Maggie Nelson posed to some of her friends. What makes you feel most free? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed. 
org. Um, Maggie Nelson, I did want to move to this phrase, common common phrase, which it turns out you do not like, the problematic fave, someone whose art or music you might like but you think has bad politics. What what do you see as wrong with sort of deploying this term? Well, I think a lot of the book is um, – a lot of the book is caught up with the problem that I described by quoting J- Judith Butler at the beginning of the book. Um, I'm looking for it, but I don't think I'll find it in time. But basically uh, a process of putting um, all the destructive uh, elements of a psyche onto other, to other people uh, with whom we identify as the not me, and then we then disidentify that uh, with. And I think that um, that term problematic fave is a, is a kind of shorthand example of that um, in so far as, uh, you know, art or people in public, you know, are often just very public people for whose uh, complexities and bad behaviors, um, psychic traumas, you know, all kinds of things are held up for us to see. And if they make work in the world that uses all of that um, and that we uh, worship and love the work, you know, often we, um, it's, it's hard for us to grapple with the fact (laughs) that people who do that kind of work often, um, uh, they don't necessarily have just an uncontaminated relationship to the things that they're drawing upon to make that work. And so there's a quote from Eve Sedgwick, a queer theorist in the beginning of the book, talking about artists where she says, you know, it's important to remember that sometimes the most paranoid seeming people, um, need to develop the most reparative making art practices. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is very true. So problematic fave is a kind of term that instead of understanding that very complicated relationship between um, the paranoid and the reparative um, and, and art, it instead just kind of says, wow, if, if, if these few features could be clipped off this person, I'd be happy to go back to worshiping them the way that I did you know, before I knew about these ethically compromised um, things, which is not to say, as I say in the book, that you know, art or celebrity or anything um, can or should be used as a kind of you know, a blanket protection from, from charges of ethical misdeed, you know, not at all. It's just, it's more about that phrase, problematic fave is more about um, looking at ourselves as fans or spectators or readers and asking questions of why we do what we do with the people that we admire um, or, or degrade. It also seems adjacent in your book to the kind of fundamental, maybe I'll call it a mystery of sort of what art is healing and what art is traumatic and whether that can actually be known ahead of time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that the chapter on art takes up a discourse about the, you know, what's sometimes called the rhetoric of harm, um, which is at play in, in different environments. But in the art world, you know, it, it kind of takes as a principle that works of art can do harm. Um, I think that's, it's a complicated notion, which needs context to, you know, some works of art actually have, as I wrote about in a previous book of mine, The Art of Cruelty, you know, have engaged in actual uh, physical harm, <laughs> their participants, that's kind of a whole different story, but the, but the kind of rhetoric of harm that, um, and care that circulates now is about something different, which is about, you know, whether or not um, we should treat works of art as kind of capable of, uh, of provoking trauma. Um, or if they should be disallowed in some way because of that equation. 
You know, there was a little passage of the book on page 62, the uh, second paragraph there, that I was hoping maybe you could read for us that that goes into uh, some uh, of these questions. Sure. Uh, It goes like this. Uh, The one that says art has long served. served. Oh, sure. Art has long served as a place for people to act out what they want and think about stuff they want to be thinking about. It has long been a place to engage in open-ended experiments with extremity, wildness, satire, defiance, taboo, beauty, and absurdity to make space for anarchic gestures and urges that might otherwise rip apart, for better or for worse, social norms or fabric. It has long been a site of freedom and fun that does not make or rarely makes recourse to intimidation, threats, or bullying. As Don Lundy Martin has said about Kara Walker's work, It can also be an exorcism, a purging of cultural demons, a frame to contemplate or bevel that which is simply uncontemplatable elsewhere. To some of us, it offers magic, magic hard to come by elsewhere and which can make life feel more worth living. To those who would scoff at such a characterization as sentimental enchantment or who have come to see art as just another bankrupt concept or damaging tributary of capital, I offer no rebuttal save a reminder that it can be other things too. Things that, things that to some of us matter as much as or more than the fruits of demystification. Thank you for that. Maggie Nelson reading from her new book on freedom. So this is kind of your big defense of, of the experience <laughs> of art, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wondered how you apply that kind of uh, worldview, really, to you know some of these specific controversies that you discuss in the book, um, such as Dana Schutt's open casket and the open letter um, that the artist Hannah Black wrote to the Whitney Museum, uh, asking that the work um, be be taken out of a, a big show. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think that people should not register strong discontent or protest against, um, you know anything that they find objectionable, you know? So the the question really for me in this chapter wasn't like thumbs up, thumbs down on the reaction to um, those works. It was more um, as somebody who has worked, you know, in uh, you know, where I taught at an art school for 11 years, I'm married to an artist who, you know, many, most of my friends are, are artists and kind of, you know, and I mean, I guess, I know different books of mine can be classified as art in different ways, but I think that Um, You know, I'm really familiar with the ways in which um, uh, that art has an unconscious, you know, and that it doesn't and that all the best intentions or even intention to make the most caring art in the world um, doesn't necessarily make it so. And conversely, art that's made, you know, recklessly or even with in some cases, you know, a kind of attempt to smear your bad feelings around. Um, can actually do quite reparative work in the world. So I think that this chapter is really setting up shop in a kind of, um, you know, and kind of trying to just make a space to give some respect to um, that activity, you know, which is a little bit different than just uh, the activity of turning art. You know, sometimes it works as, as pawns in symbolic warfare. Certainly artists serve that purpose for millennia, but it also can be do other work too. Well, and there's coursing through this chapter is also this question of sort of the relationship between art and, you know, what we've come to call identity politics. You know, you quote uh, uh, queer feminist uh, Silman as saying, what would be much more interesting than the strong opposition to identity politics would be a more interesting 
identity politics, the formation mm-hmm. of more questions about other people's actual experience um, and perceptions. Where do you see people building that more interesting identity politics? Well, interesting. I do. I see it all over in art, you know, and I think that there's this kind of there's a tension in art and in other places where there's the work which does all these wild things. And then there's kind of the museum curatorial, uh, you know, industry that wants to kind of describe it, you know, and so often I'll see work doing all these crazy things that are, you know, transgressing all kinds of things. Um, and offering all kinds of new, you know, modelings about identity and post-identity and shredded identity and, you know, whatever it is. And then you'll kind of read the wall text and they'll say, this piece, you know, evidences community care or something. And you're like, okay, you know, okay, maybe, you know, but I think I I find that tension really interesting, you know, and I think that, um, and I think that most, I mean, it was a kind of a fascination of mine that developed when I went around with the Argonauts for, for more time than I even thought I was going to for a couple of years, um, talking about the book and, you know, doing events with that book. And, uh, you know, people were so expressed so much gratitude to me for that book in terms of its um, kind of loosened grip on certain kinds of identity, um, queer identities, um, and felt like it spoke to realities in which they were living that they hadn't felt otherwise were represented. And I thought that was really interesting just in that it spoke to, there is also a hunger not just for um, seeing things, seeing identities rep- represented in a, in a codified fashion, but there was all this other hunger as well. And I, and I experienced that really viscerally with, with many meaningful interactions around that work. We're talking with Maggie Nelson about her new book on freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. And we want to know what makes you feel most free. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Sex and drugs in this book make sense sort of in the middle. Um, art and climate change kind of bookend those two. And we're going to get to sex and drugs in a minute, if that's what the listeners have been waiting for out there. But what, what relationship um, do you think art and climate change kind of share to freedom? Well, you know, that's a really good question, because I actually think part of this book's um, uh, part of why it takes these the structure of these chapters is that I'm I and maybe this is a little contrary to what you're asking, but. Um, in as much as there may be shared things, I also think that we have to allow different contexts to operate differently and not allow for um, uh, a kind of uh, theoretical or even ethical homogeneity to necessarily permeate every sphere. So for example, an artist could be um, keeping to an ethics that they believe in about what they owe themselves or the world by making art that they make that might not be pleasing to other people. And that that may be entirely in keeping with the principle for them of say, right speech or something like that. Um, in the climate chapter, um, I think that the, the forms of harm that are at stake, I think are different. You mean, I think that it's different to take away um, the right to uh, drink uh, you know, to have clean water and air and a climate that's habitable and people's homelands being eviscerated. I mean, I think all that's different. So I think while there are commonalities um, throughout all the chapters, part of the why I take so much care to stay for, you know, 80 pages with, with each one is to show how it doesn't have to, um, 
um, how our feelings about care and freedom don't have to look exactly similarly in every single scenario, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I, I do want to talk about care a little bit more because I think, you know, for you and I think in, in some parts of the art world, this has taken on that that word has taken on more than its sort of commonplace meaning of sort yeah. of like, you know, helping somebody out or like making lunches. Um, what, what does it mean? What does care mean to you? And how did you see it sort of um, connected to freedom? Well, in the art chapter in particular, I was, I mean, I think that the word care has uh, been mobilized in many ways, some of which I think are more uh, fruitful than others. I think that the, my book is not about this, but I think a lot of the conversations about museums and their relationship to a kind of um, both caring for the art that's in its, their possession while also reckoning with the history of how a lot of that art has been stolen and there's a concentration of capital and, you know, all kinds of um, complicated issues about museums and their um, and how they um, acquire and move capital, retain capital. So that's a whole one conversation about kind of caring for the art. And, um, but the conversation in my book about caring about art is really also meant to again kind of draw attention to a much to a much smaller scene, which in some ways is the artist and the artist's relationship to caring for her work. And I think that there's a very complicated. Uh, thing that I think most artists are familiar with, which is that, you know, not caring about audience, not caring what people think, especially as I write in the book for women who've been socialized to care so much, you know, is a very important fulcrum to, to get through in order to um, make work. And I think that I say at one point art that doesn't like I go to art because I don't want to be cared for by art. Like I feel, I feel freer when I don't think the art is trying to care for me. There's something about um, the nature of a third thing in between two people that wasn't made um, to directly address um, someone else's needs that I find a lot of freedom in that, um, in that third thing status. So I think the chapter tries to call attention to that and differentiate it from direct care, which as you say, might be making someone a sandwich or doing hospice labor or, um, you know, whatever, bringing your neighbor, going through chemotherapy, casseroles, I mean, whatever it is, you know, there's, there's care on all kinds of scales. But I think um, the indirect work that art does as care is more important in some sense than the, than the direct work. Well, I think, you know, thinking about drugs in, in this context, it's kind of interesting because you kind of use the sort of junkie literature, you know, people who mm -hmm. are really into drugs to kind of explore I guess kind of the outer reaches of when it's possible <laughs> to say that someone is free. Um, mm -hmm. Is that is that how you saw that chapter? Like, let's just push it all the way to the end. Like, what if <laughs> what if being free means like taking drugs and inviting what might be seen as sexual abuse and, and, and all these other things? You go all the way down that line. Like, are you still free? Are you still caring for yourself and others? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you brought that up in that way, because I do. Th I do. Th because the drug chapter is actually... Um, in some ways it's the most uh, difficult or esoteric in this book, but in some ways for me, it's really at the heart of it. And it's because of that extremity that you mentioned, you know, it's because the drug drive is so difficult to recuperate for anyone hoping to have a kind of recuperative liberatory politics of like, it doesn't look either to the outside or often to the inside, like a freedom drive, you know, when you are addicted to heroin or, um, you know, to meth or whatnot. And I think that the, the chapter, um, while it spends a lot of time describing how um, 
you know, how it, it doesn't denigrate, I guess, um, the kinds of freedoms that, that certain addictive drugs have to offer, which I think is important. It doesn't, it also doesn't disqualify them as it doesn't say they're not real freedoms, but it, but it, but it calls, you know, and through my own experience with sobriety, it, it calls on a kind of attentiveness um, in us to notice, you know, as any addict will eventually notice that something that might have felt like a liberatory experience has become um, incredibly constraining and to the point of being, um, you know, the source of um, excruciating suffering. And so I think that that chapter, yeah, a lot of the books I discussed, they go, they go all the way down. Um, and I think all the way down is an important place to go for the reasons that you mentioned. Well, I think one fascinating thing you did was was to enter gender into this conversation, like the the yeah. concept of male junkies seeming somehow romantic or adventurous, whereas yeah. women junkies were like abandoning their responsibilities. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by that dichotomy about drug literature and experience, and I've always, um, you know, maybe because I. Uh, came up, uh, I went to high school in the Haight-Ashbury and I came up in the Bay Area, you know, right after the summer of love. And I think I always was totally fascinated by, um, you know, what, what when I was growing up was this very kind of denigrated idea of like, oh, all these hippie chicks who thought they'd been experiencing liberation, but really they were just on a kind of sluice into being, you know, used up and, and um, you know, uh, you know, drugged out and you know bad things happening to them and i and i, I just i just have always i just was always like there is so much more here <laughs> to figure <laughs> out and to know about and a lot of the storehouse for some of that information you know is found in literature and memoir i mean it's not it, and so the chapter spends a lot of time with some with books by women or um you know non-binary people talking about drug use yeah. we're talking with maggie nelson about her new book on freedom four songs of care and constraint. We do want to hear from you. Do you think the concept of freedom has been warped by our political climate? How and why? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more Maggie Nelson. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking with Maggie Nelson about her new book on freedom. So I wanted to get to your chapter on sex, which is really interesting. It feels like the intervention you're trying to make here is just to like open a massive space for femme desire. Is that was that kind of like the core of that chapter for you or do you see something else going on? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't classify it as femme desire per se, because I think femmes have a lot of different kinds of desires, you know, and I also wouldn't associate certain things that I'm describing as being only for uh, certain drives 
um, as being uh, femme specific. But I do think that um, there's a kind of discourse that has a lot of interest to me about, um, you know, about, I guess, what some people have called emergent desire or, you know, things that um, uh, are different from this idea of kind of going out in the town, knowing what you want, saying what you want, you know, this kind of uh, uh, liberal individual idea of somebody who is in, is in control of all that in a completely law, you know, lawful fashion. Um, and that can enter into, you know, contract about it and that how that doesn't seem to um, describe the sex, you know, sex life of most people I know. And that there's, um, uh, yeah, and they, I do spend a lot of time, I wouldn't even say femme desire, I would say, um, I, I would say sexual subjectivity, you know, mm. um, which is a difficult a thing, ironically, you know, since we've kind of, you know, uh, you know, apparently desire it so much for women, but I actually think it's a very difficult place to inhabit because uh, sexual subjectivity and um, avowed desires rather than disavowed desires brings you into lots of difficulty about those um, desires not being matched uh, by by others, you know, by being humiliated, by being, by, you know, feelings of shame, by, I mean, all kinds of things that attend desire. And so it's uh, the position of sexual subjectivity um, is a difficult one to inhabit. And I think that we, um, you know, my point in the chapter wasn't so much to say that there was anything wrong with the outpouring of stories about misconduct from the Me Too um, movement, but to just note that um, uh, insofar as every age kind of creates a archive of what it's able to say about sex, there were a lot of things that we still don't seem to me to be saying and that it's important not to think that because we're talking about harassment or trauma that we actually are, that we still might not be talking about sex, which is actually in some sense more difficult for a variety of reasons, you know. You know, I found your discussion of Monica Lewinsky's evolution, at least her, her evolution as described in her own writing, mm -hmm. um, really fascinating as a way of getting at this. Can you talk about how, how you've come to view what she's written publicly about her experiences with Bill Clinton? Yeah, I just really liked, um, I mean, I quoted from it kind of at some length, but I just really liked this last visitation of um, what had happened uh, because I think that for, you know, she and I are probably about the same age. And I think for years and coming up, um, you know, there was, uh, you know, there was a kind of heroics uh, that I felt like I, I associated with her about desire um, and about her kind of insistence about um, that the that the worst things that had happened to her were not abuses of power on his part, but were the things that Ken Starr and other people um, did in their wake. That that was the violation, not the sex. And that it was in this later later piece in Vanity Fair, kind of through the lens of the Me Too movement, that she was beginning to grapple with the abuse of power that did take place and what it meant to her framework around you know what she'd been saying for years about I wanted this is what I wanted you know, um, and what that did to notions of consent. But I but what I pulled out about that piece is that she doesn't go all the way to like so now I see that all of my desires and my feelings of agency were all a ruse and you know um, this this current iteration of feminism has you know the scales have dropped from my eyes you know she she keeps it like she keeps it in motion and she keeps saying I'm now taking these new things into account and I'm you know I'm I'm not going also this this notion like we're not going anywhere necessarily where we eventually land on the one truth of our experience. And I spend some time with this idea that there's no such thing as a true story, 
um, not to say that things don't happen that are real or factual or that violations don't happen that are real and factual, but more that our relationship to those stories, um, you know, a lot of research on trauma has shown that one hallmark of traumatic experience is the inability to make new stories about it, you know, being stuck in one story. And I think that, um, you know, a certain, uh, a certain uh, flexibility around the stories that we tell ourselves can be a sign of health. And I saw her doing that in that piece. Yeah. Um, I want to get to at least some of these comments that have been uh, coming in. Um, Judd writes, for me, freedom is always a conflict between freedom to act, guns, racial identities, et cetera, and freedom from those acts, from harm, hunger, et cetera. I feel freeish when I have a rare balance between conflicting freedoms. And, uh, you know, some of this some of this tension really has to do with sort of the power to uh, to to maintain those freedoms, which is something that you talk about quite extensively in the book, the relationship between the, the necessity really of power in the sort of relationships of freedom. Yeah, I mean, I think I hear in the question a kind of, um, you know, kind of two age old things in the conversation about freedom, one being this freedom to and freedom from distinction, you know, and then this other one being this kind of, um, sometimes brokers down a kind of on a right left lines, like with the right saying, I want the freedom to, you know, my guns or what have you. And then the left saying, you know, I want a freedom, <clears throat> I want a freedom uh, from, you know, oppressive conditions, you know, that make my life less, less free. Um, I think that, yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I think all those, um, I mean, I, I like the way that the listener talks about, I, I can't remember the verb, but about kind of juggling or pulling. And balance, kind of, I think. Yeah. Balance, yeah. Well, balance, that's better than juggling or pulling. Those are my glosses on balance. But I think that we do experience um, freedoms often as um, as a push and pull between freedoms from and freedoms to and between, you know, and a lot of, with a lot of psychic resistance and uh, complexity. And I think that's part of the, that's part of the, that's part of the whole thing. Let's add caller LT into our conversation. Welcome, LT. Hello. Hi, go ahead. You're on. I didn't know I was going to be put on, but um, nice to nice to talk with you today. Nice to talk with you too. What would you uh, What would you like me to address? Oh, I, I thought you were going to talk about when we feel most free. Yes. Um, well, what what jumped into my mind is uh, instantly was when we love. Feel most free. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, do you want to add anything to that, or I can ask? Well, Maggie. I, I, there was no, there's no buy sell in there. It's not good works. It's not in its purest form. It's just giving and receiving open heartedly, and there is no calculation, and there is no hook, um, no strings, and so. If we get to that pure point, uh, we are free. Thanks for that, LT. Maggie Nelson, what, what did you hear in that question that you'd like to respond to? I thought it was super interesting. In fact, you know, it might be interesting for LT to know that the very first footnote in my book says many have connected rather than opposed love and freedom, as in Bell Hooks's Love is the Practice of Freedom. Um, uh, and other people who've, you know, who've spent time on that process. I, what I also hear in that is that the notion of love um, that LT is conjuring, having to do with the kind of selflessness 
um, or ego um, liberation um, is a very, um, I, I think that there is a lot of liberatory potential there. And that again, with our words, you know, for some people when they hear love, they uh, hear something different. So I think it's really interesting to have that definition of love on the table. Um, another comment from Adam. Right, so there's a recurring theme in political theory about citizens needing to be free enough from toil or obligation, call it civic virtue, to take part in working on the problems of society. In a pre-fossil fuels era, this usually required a permanent underclass or a permanent aristocracy. How might we make collective decisions under a solar freedom? Kind of calling back to an earlier part of our conversation about um, oil and, and energy as it relates to freedom. How do we arrange the work so more can take part? Is freedom in endless meeting? <laughs> um, what do you think? Yeah, well, it may be. I mean, I think, though, that what I think that this point about um, what has been needed to produce the like, you know, say, and if you think, you know, all the way back to the Greeks, like the idea of what would produce the citizen, uh, the male citizen able to discuss in the public square the problems of the times, you know, that that subject was produced by, you know, the work of women and slaves taking care of the realm of uh, mm -hmm. care and obligation to produce the free subject, right? And this has been something that has gone all the way through. I mean, it's at the basis of, I mean, there's an excellent book, many of your listeners probably know by Sadia Hartman called Scenes of Subjection, where she traces exactly this production of the notion of freedom on the backs of, um, uh, you know, chattel slavery in American discourse, um, and asks some very profound questions about how on, how on earth we're going to get out of it if freedom means to be non-encumbered by encumbering other people, right? So this question, which is a kind of abolition question of what is a kind of freedom, um, which imagines the most people, essentially all people, um, enjoying uh, this kind of autonomy as opposed to um, this structure of encumbering some to produce the freedom for others. And by encumbering, I also mean subjugating, you know, it can run the gamut. Um, I think is, you know, it's, it's, it's utterly critical. <laughs> it's utterly critical. And that's why the book takes issue with a freedom versus care construct, because the more we, um, the more we do that and the more we don't reckon with the history of encumbrance and subjugation and coercion in care, we are not going to get out of um, the structure that we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. Listener tweets, I can't hear the word freedom now without thinking of free market ideology, a.k.a. neoliberalism. How has this kind of capitalism and its idea of freedom left its mark on your feminism? And do you have any tips for how we unwind its grasp? <laughs> oh, Lord. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, none, none of us are untouched by the worlds in which we live and the things that, I mean, even if I wanted to set up myself uh, far afield from those, um, uh, from the notions of freedom that you're describing, I, it wouldn't even be possible given that I'm an American and given that, you know, given the I'm white American, I mean, all these different legacies that, um, that run through me or us. I mean, I do think, I don't know if this is a good answer per se, but, you know, for me, part of this book project and the thinking aloud with others is that, you know, I try and push my thinking around a lot by reading a lot, you know, and a lot from a lot of different quarters. And by consistently, um, you know, wondering, and as I wonder in the afterward of this book about how we change the spirit of our thinking against what seemed to be fixed or what seemed to be um, the kind of product of our demographics or our experience. Um, you know, to me, I've found that mostly in, um, in conversation with others, be it on the page, you know, or in, or in lived community. Mm -hmm. This 
is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This forum, we're talking with Maggie Nelson about her new book on freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. You know, we have a few different comments that want to talk about what makes you feel free, kind of uh, getting out into nature, away from the TV, cell phone, and computer. And there's a kind of theme that you don't really directly address in the book, but it's the way that kind of the webs of power have been reshaped by information technologies. Um, the, just the, the ways that power can flow in different ways because of trolling on the sort of bad side or sort of collective digital organization on the good side. Um, how did you come to see that as kind of a, um, a cross-cutting force through these different chapters? A lot of people have asked me if there were any chapters that I didn't end up writing, but that could have been a part of it. And the one that the only other bucket that I was filling research on was about um, digital surveillance and information technology. And and then I read Zainab Tufiki's Twitter and Tear Gas and felt like she really covered it. (laughs) And I kind of thought that's okay. And I but I did have, you know, this question, which is, I think, a question that I think about all the time. And I I think about it also like, again, as like a sober person is a sober person who's also sober from social media. Like I don't do social media. And I I think all the time about how many people describe to me almost in confidence how miserable their social media life makes Mm -hmm. them. And yet, you know, we don't, we, we, but yet we choose it over and over and over again. You know, we don't, you might say, oh, I feel freest at the creek, you know, and I'm down, not thinking about any of my troubles. I'm not plugged into Instagram or Twitter. And then you're like, ooh, a tweet. (laughs) Well, exactly. And you're also thinking that's great, except for that, you know, we choose to spend, you know, you know, 12 to 18 hours of our, you know, a lot of people, their days, you know, attached to our phones. But I'm not against that per se in the sense that like I'm interested in why we, I mean, that's what the drug chapter is really about. You know, I'm interested in why we do things that we also say that we hate. I think that's a very human thing. I do a million things that I say I hate, you know, and I think, um, you know, getting interested in that instead of just um, disavowing it or again, projecting it onto others who do things that um, don't seem wise is, is really the best path forward. Do you think addiction is the best framework for thinking about these things, whether it's drugs or devices or, or anything else? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I spend a lot of time with a book called Whiteout about heroin by a writer named Michael Clune, whom I really admire. And um, he has another great book called Game Life about video games. And and Clune has actually written a lot. Uh, you can find stuff online about, you know, why he doesn't think that the addiction metaphor works for video gaming, you know, mm-hmm. whereas I know in a lot of places people actually do think that that works. There's also some real questions that I have in the footnote about whether or not an addiction framework um, may even work, I mean, our recovery framework really, you know, how it, how it works with, say, like de-radicalizing white supremacists or, mm. um, you know, what I, I do think that there's an enormous amount of um, wisdom in recovery movements that has to do, and this again, it's back to the freedom care thing, instead of kind of shaking your fist and saying, why don't you care about other people? You know, in recovery movements, people know very well that people don't recover for because other people are shaming them <laughs> and they don't recover because other people are saying that you're hurting them. They recover because they find in themselves a desire for recovery, you know? And I think that that is a place, that's a, that's a notion of autonomy that I think addiction, um, uh, you know, people who work with addiction are, are very 
interested in because I know that if you have interventions or things where you make the person feel um, more bereft of agency, you will only worsen the problem. So I think that there's a lot of, um, I don't know if I think that the model is exactly right for everything, but I think the modalities um, from recovery are very, um, can be very fruitful. Yeah, you know, fi- final comment from Lupe. Freedom, what a beautiful concept, idea, reality, and continuous life battle. As I listen, I reflect on what freedom means to me and my children's faces come to mind. What makes me feel more free is remembering what it felt like to be a child before external limitations indoctrinated by school, church, and society. And I can't help to reflect if I'm limiting my, ch- limiting my children's freedom by shaping their minds to agree with my own ideals instead of serving as a guide and allowing them <laughs> to figure out their own <laughs> conclusions. Um, in 30 seconds, parenting and freedom. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, if I hadn't disavowed writing about my family after the Argonauts, I probably would write a second book about parenting and freedom because there's a kind of shadow, uh, there's a shadow discourse to everything I've written in this book, which is that parenting for me is, you know, the most humbling place to, um, to look at one's own behaviors and attitudes for precisely all the reasons that the listener mentioned. So bravo to you for, for thinking about it. And I think because as a parent, you're the super ego, right? I mean, you're the, you're the, you're the person doing the controlling of someone else's um, autonomy. And then as the child is older and older, your job shifts into kind of what I'm describing, like making space for their autonomy, making space for failure, making space for suffering. Um, and how the parent undergoes that shift and how to do it well, you know, is certainly a battle that I'm in every day. So I hear you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Maggie Nelson. We've been talking about your new book, On Freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.